Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 49, Pope Simplicious. Like the sewing designs? Is that a thing? Because <laughs> this is totally my official favorite pope name. Like, to me, when I hear this name, I think of being a teenage girl in the 90s. And if you wanted to create like a bubblegum pop band, you would definitely call it Simplicious. You're so. absolutely right. No, the sewing patterns are simplicity, but oh. alas. He would he, he would have liked that, I think, you know, because Simplicious. <laughs> simplicious is definitely like an early aughts girl band name. A hundred percent. It's got one of those asterisks in it for no reason, like Bewitched did. Oh, yes. Yeah, it would be that I right in the middle, PL, asterisk. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. it would be cool like that. So this is definitely my favorite Pope name. This does not make him my favorite Pope, though, just so we're clear. That's fine. Yeah, there's going to be favorite Popes to come still, but this is going to be a very interesting episode. So, unfortunately... We're back to knowing almost nothing about the Pope before his election. Ebbs and flows. Yeah. Our foremost source for Simplicious is going to be the Liber Pontificalis. No! Yeah, we're back to a bit of a dark period. This is one of our very spotty sources period, and once we get into context, it will not be difficult to see why. But... What we do know is that Simplicius was born in Tivoli, which is also in the Lazio region of Italy, very close to Rome, and his father's name was Castinus, who is credited in all the sources as being a citizen and nothing else. Okay, so he was definitely from Tivoli, a citizen, not even a gentleman, just a citizen. And he had a son called Simplicius, so that's all we have. Fast forward to the election. The sources say that Simplicius was elected easily on February 25th of 468, 10 days after the death of Hilarius. But in Hilarius's episode, where we had a lot more sources to go on, they indicated that he died on the 28th or the 29th of February. So there's a little bit of date finagling here. Yeah, they would have had to elect him before then. Yeah, and that's just a huge, huge, huge no-no in the church at this time. So the only other date that I could see referenced was March 3rd of 468, which made a lot more sense, but was significantly less cited. So either way, they're all within like a week of one another, so it doesn't matter. Somewhere within that week, he was elected and consecrated as Pope. And right away... Simplicius gets to work, and starts by making some pretty notable changes in Rome itself. Do you remember, all the way back at the beginning, when all we had to talk about our popes was to cite how many holy ordinations they had in December? Yep. Yeah, we're, we're back to, like, almost that level of sources. But the 9th century liturgical writer Amalarius of Metz, in the court of Charlemagne, and 17th century liturgist Edmund Martin credits Simplicius for changing this practice by being the first pope to add new consecrations. So now, instead of just having holy orders in December, we also have holy orders and consecrations in February, too. It's not very exciting yet. Simplicius also followed the pattern of his predecessors and went about building many churches in Rome though, unfortunately, not all of them exist today. His best-known church was the Santa Bibiana, erected near or on the site of her grave. And then there were two churches that were founded when the church received great halls, like, donated to them, and then they were converted into churches. And this is the San Stefano Rotondo on the Calian Hill, which is still part of the modern church by the same name. And the Church of St. Andrew, near San Maria Maggiore, which no longer exists. He also dedicated a church to St. Lawrence in the Campe Verano, but that also isn't around anymore. The Liber Pontificalis also tells us that Simplicius was focused on creating 
routine and publicly available religious services and sacraments, like baptism and penance, all throughout the major areas of the city. Like, this is not something that's happening very regularly right now, so he wants to just make it so that wherever you are in the city, as a civilian, you will be able to attend a service somewhere. So he sets for three main churches, St. Peter on the Vatican, St. Paul's on the Via Ostiensis, and St. Lawrence on the Via Tibertina, to provide services regularly, again, that any civilian could attend, and so that they would serve as a model for other churches to follow. This is what church should look like. This is where you can go, and this is what every other church should follow. So this is a really important moment for ongoing consistency and longevity during some super tumultuous shifts in Rome. Now, speaking of tumultuous shifts, something happens. Something Something happens, and this is a big something. The kind of big something that bookmarks the end of our early church period and slides us straight into the new era that is the medieval world, loosely speaking. Sliding into the medieval world's DMs. We we so are. This is the moment, this is the Instagram shot that we saw to slide into those DMs. <laughs> what a terrible thing to say. I hate it. Ah, uh, yeah. That was that was brutal. So, we've had a lot of big somethings to deal with in some of our recent episodes. You know, we had the sack of Rome in 410, the threat of invasion by Attila the Hun in 450, the sack of Rome by the Vandals in 455, the crumbling borders and lost territories of the last few episodes, like we've lost huge parts of Gaul, Hispania, Britannia, Africa. Basically, the 5th century has not been kind to the Roman Empire, but the beaten and bruised empire has trucked along. Until now, this moment is 476, the fall of Rome. Now, there are a lot of historical and academic debates about the fall of Rome with regard to whether it should be considered a fall or not, or what level of impact this had, or whether we should use it as an era marker or not. But this is not a podcast specifically about the Roman Empire, and so this is not the place for us to outline all of those academic arguments. For our purposes, from this moment on, the West, where Rome actually is, is no longer a direct part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire as a whole will continue because the East will continue to consider themselves the Roman Empire and will refer to themselves as Romans, even though we're going to start calling them the Byzantines. Rome is out of the picture. All right. So we're going to cover a very brief version of what happened in 476. So first off, it should be no surprise, given what we've already covered, that the imperial throne has not been stable. Our previous long-lasting Western emperor, Valentinian III, had been murdered in 455 in a situation that was kind of half-coup and half-revenge for someone that Valentinian had murdered personally. Remember Aetius, his general that we talked about with Attila the Hun, and Valentinian straight up murdered him in the face? Yeah, it was about that. And after him, the next handful of emperors didn't really last long, you know, a couple months to a couple years at most, and most of them hadn't done particularly well. There were constant uprisings from within, the invasions on the borders continues, territory continued to be lost, and relationships with barbarians like the Goths, the Vandals, and the Swaby were fragile and constantly changing. Italy in particular was in really bad shape, with consistent raiding happening throughout the whole of the peninsula at this point. And to make matters worse, the current emperor, Romulus Augustulus, was at most 16 years old. A small boy. A small boy, yeah, and he is Emperor Baby, and he is wholly incapable and unprepared for the job, 
And he had literally been placed on the imperial throne because his father, Orestes, who was serving as Magister Militum. Orestes arrests people? Oh, Orestes, not God ah, damn. <laughs> but he is the Magister Militum, so he would arrest people. So, Orestes had rebelled against the last emperor, Julius Nepos. But when that all went sideways, he refused to become emperor himself and put his son on the throne. By arresting everybody. By arresting. (laughs) (laughs) And and the Eastern Emperor didn't even bother to accept or recognize Augustulus as a legitimate emperor in the West, so it is not a good time. This is where we need to introduce a very important person to our story. And this is a man called Odoacer. Odoacer was the leader of an allied collective of tribes that included the Heruli, the Rugii, and the Cyrii, who were all of Eastern Germanic origin, as well as like smatterings of Goths, Huns, and more. Various historians, both ancient and modern, give him different titles that give us an idea of how many people he actually reigned over. Like, he's known as King of the Heruli, King of the Goths, etc., etc. But basically, this was a massive collection of non-imperial groups that had interactions with Rome, both positive and negative, aka barbarians. So, much like all the other barbarian leaders at the time, Odoacer had a client-style relationship with Rome. Many tribes would make and unmake mutually beneficial military relationships with Rome, or even serve as part of the Roman army when they could ally against like a common enemy or when the reward for working with Rome was high enough. And this group of tribes was known as the Federati. And this is what was going on with Odoacer, serving in the military, and in 475, he was made the leader of the Federati. And it was during this time that he was made a leader that everything starts to go really, really sideways with the imperial leadership that ends with Augustulus, the young boy, elevated to the purple that the East isn't even going to acknowledge. In all senses, the writing is on the wall, and the Federati realize that it was now time to cash in on those promised Roman benefits for their military service, or they weren't going to be forthcoming in the future when everything inevitably fell apart. And to be clear, the benefits that they wanted was, like, permanent land settlement within Italy. You know, give them some claim and rights to the lands that they're fighting to protect right now. So Odoacer and the tribes under him petitioned the current Magister Militum, Orestes, father of the emperor, and where all the real power is, for the lands that they're owed for their service. And they were, of course, swiftly rejected. No. Yeah, um, Rome has not learned. (laughs) So, just as swiftly, Odoacer and his men revolt against Orestes, and Orestes ends up dead. Just give the barbarians some land. Just do it and save yourself all of the hassle. Did you not learn anything? Who send the barbarians to Oklahoma? Exactly. What is the Oklahoma equivalent of Italy? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to conjecture on that because I feel like I'd offend somebody in the process. (laughs) So, they kill him, Orestes, and then all the men who are underneath Odoacer, and much of the army that had fought alongside Odoacer and the Federati by this point, go ahead and declare that Odoacer should be the king of Italy. Oh. Yeah, yeah, so that's a thing. And from there, it's only a matter of time before Odoacer and the overwhelming force were able to capture Ravenna, which is the current capital in the West, and force little baby Augustulus to abdicate on September 4th of 476. And that's actually like a real abdication. He does not kill Augustulus. Well, Augustulus is a baby. Yeah, but that is kind of the way these things usually go. But either way, it's it's quite nice, because he is such a baby that Odoacer lets him go into exile to be with his family in Campania, with a stipend of 6,000 gold pieces, which says a lot about Odoacer's character at this point. And this is sourced from the Excerpta Valesiana. 
And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So yeah, Odoacer assumes the title of King of Italy at this point in somewhat of an official capacity. And now Rome is no longer part of the empire. This is obviously like the Cliff Notes version, because we have to shift our focus now to how this played out for the church and how this plays out for Simplicius. By the time that Rome became a kingdom rather than an empire, Simplicius had already been pope for eight years. And as we'll see with some of the other pieces we're going to talk about, he'd been working very hard to maintain that firm sense of unity and to maintain Rome's position as the head of the whole church. So this whole breaking away from the empire thing is a moment of major, major concern for him. The church and the empire had gotten very enmeshed when it came to state administration and had gotten very comfortable having a very direct hand in governing and having power. And now that could all crumble and fall apart. The church is being cut off from the empire. And who knew what the status quo was going to be? And he had more to worry about than just the drastic change of admin, because like we've seen a lot in our discussion with the barbarians outside of Rome, Odoacer is an Arian Christian. So, by Pope Simplicius' standards, a heretic had just come into the assumption of the entire civil administration of Rome. Terrifying. So terrifying. Could you imagine being this Pope man at this moment? You would have bitten all of your nails off by this point. Your toenails. Your friend's nails. <laughs> Please do not chew on my... I, why am I less bothered by the toenails than if you were coming at my nails? But yeah, okay. But fortunately for Simplicius, it turned out not to be a very real problem. Despite the fact that Odoacer just overthrew 400 years of imperial tradition in Rome and had broken away from the empire, he was actually not a ruler that was interested in massive upheaval. <laughs> Surprise. He came and he went, I'm in charge, and nobody died. It's true. Well, that one man died. <laughs> In fact, part of the reason that we have debates over whether this should be called the fall of Rome, just like you're saying, has to do with the fact that Odoacer styled himself king, but only king so far as he wanted to have a client relationship and serve as a client king under the Eastern Roman Emperor, which is currently a man called Zeno. Yeah, he, he is a man who is not particularly looking to reinvent the wheel. He even retained most of the government administration exactly how it had been so that he didn't cause major upset or chaos. You know, it's business as usual. Meet the new boss almost the same as the old boss. Pretty easy. And for this reason, Odoacer wasn't blind to the fact that the church was a massive part of how civil administration worked in Rome. And so he saw a huge advantage in allowing the church to continue the power and influence it had in government, and didn't try to infringe on its right to rule itself either. For the large majority, Odoracer showed the church a lot of respect as an important institution and left it alone. Literally, historian J.B. Burry in his book, History of the Later Roman Empire, says bluntly, quote, the church was unaffected by his rule. As an Arian, he held aloof from ecclesiastical affairs. So in short, this meant that Simplicius continued as pope, completely unchallenged, and no one prohibited or prevented him from getting even more involved in local civil administration and power. And Father Alban Butler tells us that Simplicius seized the opportunity and was active in providing spiritual comfort and encouragement for those troubled by the transition, relieving anybody who had been displaced or afflicted, and working to convert the new influx of barbarian tribesmen who now had significantly more ability to come settle in Rome. And since, you know, Odoacer was going to have his hands full with an entire kingdom to deal with, even more of the secular power of Rome is in the hands of the Pope. So this is... This has worked out very nicely for him. He went from chewing his best friend's 
fingernails to just like rubbing his hands together like, yes. Okay, first stop manicure, second stop fix up Rome. Gotta fix that Rome. Gotta fix those hangnails after I bit them off. But this is an interesting point worth exploring because it's a reflection on just how indispensable the church was at this time. Considering the church was legitimized less than 150 years ago, we are now looking at a situation where a major overhaul in leadership and a king with a completely different religious creed still doesn't look to upset the balance of church influence. We could ask ourselves, would it have even been possible to extricate the church and still have a functioning society in the new kingdom of Italy? Probably not. So this is a total win for Simplicius. His authority is untouched, or maybe even it had grown. So now that Rome is entirely relatively settled, let's go look at what he did elsewhere. First up, Hispania. Going back to Spain, we had some issues there. Yeah, and he wants to extend upon the efforts that Hilarius had made in Spain to bring, like, the reach of the Apostolic See to the far-flung province. To on their party. I don't know, Simplicius seems like he would be down for the party. That would be, like, his first single hit. It's Simplicius with Down with the Party. Oh, this is going in a terrible direction. <laughs> so, Simplicius wants to build on it and create a concrete papal presence. So he appoints Zeno, who is the Bishop of Hispalis, which is modern-day Seville, to that new and honored position of papal vicar for Spain, which gives the Pope a direct representative in the province to maintain a stronger grasp despite the distance and crumbling political circumstance, and to, you know, uphold proper ecclesiastical observances if, like Rome, Spain fell to invasion. Administrative expansion isn't very exciting, but it's worth a point here. He did, he did some good for Spain. Then there was a situation in Ravenna, which is both similar and entirely different to situations that we've seen the Pope intervene in. In 482, the Archbishop of Ravenna, Johannes, or John, tried to do what we've seen bishops doing a lot lately. He tried to claim dioceses under his jurisdiction that didn't actually belong to him. In this case, John was laying claim to the Diocese of Mutina, which is modern-day Modena, as being under the jurisdictional authority of his metropolitan status. Specifically, he claimed that Mutina was a suffrage diocese, which meant that if a bishop was installed there, they would be directly subordinate to the metropolitan and would have very little actual influence of their own. So it's just a way to claim authority over more bishops and pump up his own prestige. And he did exactly that, and consecrated a bishop for Modena called Gregory, entirely against his will, because that's the thing they're doing right now. You know, we don't really generally see people forcibly being made bishops, except for last week, so. This is obviously a huge kettle of fish, no matter how you look at it. You know, it's an encroachment of territory, it's a forcible consecration, and Pope Simplicius, unlike Hilarius, is not going to let it stand and do that whole... I could punish you, but I'm not going to, and threaten John with taking away all of his authority to consecrate anyone if the situation wasn't rectified immediately. Considering that John is now a saint, St. John of Ravenna, and he maintained his bishopric until 494, and there's no future mention of a Gregory of Mutina, we can assume that he worked it out in the end. But we definitely know that Simplicius threatened him to get his together. But those are like the smaller issues he had to contend with. There are bigger fishes to fry with Constantinople and the ongoing Monophysite controversy, which has refused to die despite the Council of Chalcedon. And for the sake of chronological accuracy and clarity, this whole situation is going on like before, during, and after the fall of the Western Empire to Odoacer, but I've put it together as a cohesive narrative, so this is happening while everything else we've already talked about is happening. So we need to contextualize exactly what is happening right now to make these situations between Western and Eastern churches worse. First, we've been exploring the ongoing anxieties the churches had with Constantinople becoming more civilly important and powerful than Rome 
since Constantine moved the capital, and how the popes have tried to prevent Constantinople from having a similar rise in the church, vis-a-vis Pope Leo rejecting the 28th canon of the Council of Chalcedon. So imagine exactly how this feels for the church now that Rome's not even part of the empire. They're really concerned now. And Constantinople isn't an innocent bystander here, because suddenly, like, it's not through no effort of their own, just circumstantially, they're gaining influence, right? They are trying. Constantinople, though it had been deprived of its official patriarchate title by Pope Leo, definitely was as powerful and had as much influence and authority as the other Eastern patriarchates, like Alexandria. And now that Rome was symbolically even further away by not being imperial anymore, they sensed their opportunity to claim an increased role. They wanted to be a, a new Rome, if you will. Remember how Constantine initially titled Constantinople Nova Roma back in the day? This is coming back in a way that is unfortunate for the church. So Constantinople decides to turn back to that canon that Leo denied at Chalcedon and have a good look. That canon, for the record, Canon 28, says, quote, The fathers rightly accorded prerogatives to the see of older Rome, since that it is an imperial city, moved by the same purpose, the 150 most devout bishops apportion equal prerogatives to the most holy see of new Rome, reasonably judging the city which is honored by the imperial power and senate enjoying privileges equaling older imperial Rome and should be elevated to her level in ecclesiastical affairs and take second place after her. So, you know, that's pretty clear in it actual reading. That canon that Leo rejected basically says, you know, Rome got to be what it is because that's where the emperor was, and we honor it for that, and that it's the first one, but Constantinople should be on the same level, second only to Rome. And this is what caused such a great deal of hubbub. But Constantinople, looking at this again, is deciding that it's time that it should be actually verifiably recognized. Leo's dead, we can we can actually get this dealt with. You know, the decree had been declared and agreed upon by the bishops who attended and was only set aside originally because the Pope had rejected it. So in 474, Emperor Leo II, his father Zeno, since the emperor was a child and his father was like co-emperor slash regent, wrote to Pope Simplicius and request that he confirm the canon. But Simplicius staunchly refused on the grounds that maintaining Leo's decision and preserving apostolic succession, which should come as a surprise to no one. But for the moment, this couldn't go any further because seven-year-old Emperor Leo II died in November of 474. All these children emperors are dying. Yeah, they're dying. They're not, you know, they probably are doing the best that they can to die because when we have them live a little bit longer, they just make a big, big mess. But when he died, his father Zeno was left in charge for like four months before he was driven out in a revolt by Flavius Basiliscus, who was Zeno's mother-in-law's brother. Okay, so there had been an Emperor Leo I who was married to Verena, the Empress, and Emperor Leo II was their grandson, and Basiliscus was Verena's brother. Totalis Rankium has all the details in their Leo I, Leo II, and Zeno episodes, but you can, you can check that out in tandem with this. So Basiliscus forces Zeno into exile in Isauria, which is like distant Turkey, and styles himself to be the new emperor. And now he needs to create and secure a very solid base of support, and one of the best ways to ensure that a group will be loyal to you is to pick a group that has otherwise been, like, disenfranchised and legitimize them. What Basiliscus does with the Monophysites. Oh, no. Oh, goodness. He needs a base of support. And since the acceptance of the Council of Chalcedon had been much spottier in the East, and there were larger divisions and dissent, Basiliscus decides that he's going to seek favor with the Monophysites 
and allow bishops that had been deposed for Monophysite theology, like Timotheus Ilordus of Alexandria and Peter the Fuller of Antioch, to return to their respective dioceses. This is where it's going to get a little bit complicated. Timotheus Ilorus's return ended up deposing an Orthodox bishop, also called Timotheus. His last name is Salofasciolus. So there's Timotheus Ilorus and Timotheus Salofasciolus. And this is going to wow. be important later. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. Basiliscus also issued an imperial edict called the Enchicleon on April 9th of 475 and declared in this document, in this edict, that only the first three ecumenical councils of the church were considered valid now. So Chalcedon, just, you know, just disregard that. That's that. We don't need that anymore. The Enchicleon was preserved in the writings of Evagrius Scholasticus, who can be a, our friend for Socrates Scholasticus. Yeah, another Scholasticus. Yeah, he preserved the Enchicleon, so I'm going to read you some of the important bits. Just little segments of it. Quote, We ordain that the basis and settlement of human felicity, namely the symbol of the 318 Holy Fathers who were assembled in concert with the Holy Spirit at Nicaea, into which both ourselves and all of our believing predecessors were baptized, that this alone should have the reception and authority with the Orthodox people in all the most holy churches of God as the only formulary of the right faith and sufficient for the utter destruction of every heresy. But the proceedings which have disturbed the unity and order of the holy churches of God and the peace of the whole world, that is to say, the so-called Tome of Leo, and all things said and done at Chalcedon in innovation upon the before-mentioned holy symbol of the 318 holy fathers, whether by way of definition of faith, or setting forth of symbols, or of interpretation, or instruction, or discourse, we ordained that these shall be anathematized both here and everywhere by the most holy bishops in every church, and shall be committed to the flames wherever they shall be found. And that, having thus been rendered null, they shall be utterly expelled from the one and only Catholic and Apostolic Orthodox Church. And we ordain that these most holy bishops in every place shall subscribe to our sacred circular epistle when exhibited to them as a distinct declaration that they are indeed ruled by the sacred symbol of the 318 Holy Fathers alone, which the 150 Holy Fathers confirmed, as it was also defined by most holy fathers who subsequently assembled in the metropolitan city of Ephesus, and that the sacred symbol of the 318 holy fathers ought to be the only rule. Nicaea, Nicaea, Nicaea. Oh, and Ephesus because it confirmed Nicaea, but get rid of Chalcedon, basically. We spent an hour on Chalcedon. Oh, yeah. Oh, and we're going to spend so much longer fighting about it. Ah, uh, Easter. I know. It's the new Easter. And it's probably going to be the new Easter for longer than Easter. <laughs> so this is the document that he released. And to make his point, Basiliscus doubles down on this edict by requiring all of the Eastern bishops to sign their assent to the Enchicleon. And this is obviously a problem, because for the most part, the bishops are trying to maintain a cohesive and uniform adherence to the Chalcedonian definition. But this is a decree from the emperor, who had literally just chased another emperor out of the capital with an army. So, you know, what are you going to do? So most of the Asiatic bishops of the time, Evagrius Scholasticus tells us 500 of them, signed without much hesitation at all. And this is where it comes back to Constantinople. Because the current patriarch, Acacius of Constantinople, was faced with the demand to sign the Enchicleon. And not only was there a pressure from the emperor, but what a good way about going to get that Nova Roma title than to make a good impression with the emperor. So he considered his options carefully. And although he was hesitant, it does seem like he was prepared to sign it. However, Constantinople had a massive population of abbots priests and monks who were extremely orthodox at this point, 
and unwilling to allow their bishops to slide back into monophysitism. So they wrote to the Pope with their concerns, and they press Acacius not to sign the edict, very loudly and very publicly. And their influence worked with Acacius because he reconsiders his position and refuses to sign. And when Simplicius receives this news, he writes to Acacius directly, commending him for his resistance. He also wrote to the priests and monks of the East, commending those who had defended the decrees of Chalcedon, and condemning the Encycleon in full. And Evagrius Scholasticus tells us that at this moment, with the rejection by Acacius and the pious population of Constantinople, and the Pope chiming in, it influences Basiliscus to issue a repudiation of his own edict. Ooh, we don't see that very often. No. It says, We thus ordain that all acts during our reign, whether circular letters or others, or anything whatever relating to faith or ecclesiastical constitution be null. While we, at the same time, anathematize Nestorius, Eutyches, and every other heresy, with all who hold like sentiments, and that no synod or other debate be held on the subject, but that the present form remain unimpaired and unshaken. So, he just basically says, Oh, you guys really hate this? Okay, I'm going to undo it for real. And he does. We also have a copy of the letter that Simplicius wrote at this time directly to Emperor Basiliscus, which is the January 10th, 476 letter, where he defends Chalcedon once again and says, This same norm of apostolic doctrine is firmly maintained by Peter's successors, of him to whom the Lord entrusted the care of the entire flock of sheep, to whom he promised not to leave him until the end of time. So, oh good, you've come around because this is what the Pope says and I am the apostolic successor, so nanner nanner. Now, how this would have carried out with Basiliscus, though, moving forward, we will never know. Because in 477, Zeno returned to Constantinople to besiege the city, depose, and ultimately kill Basiliscus to reassume the purple that he got to wear for four months prior. And among all of the things that he would have to do to get his empire back in order, he wrote to the Pope, reassuring him of his commitment to orthodoxy, with a confession of faith that was in line with the Chalcedonian definition. He also double rescinded Basiliscus and Cicleon, and re-banished Peter Fuller of Antioch, who had been recalled by Basiliscus. Simplicius replied to him in his letter on October 9th, 477, congratulating him on his restoration and commending him for the maintenance of the proper religion. Now, this is where we come back to those Timothys. So, the other Monophysite bishop that had been restored, Timotheus Ilorus of Alexandria, wasn't deposed, but the Orthodox bishop he'd replaced, Timotheus Salafasciolus, was, in fact, reinstated. That's a problem. This is a little bit complex. <laughs> I'm still not over his name. Salificiolus? Yeah, that's so much. It is a lot. So now we have a bishop that isn't deposed, but a bishop that is reinstated. So there are two somewhat practical reasons that can be suggested for why they allowed two bishops, both named Timotheus, to carry on at this time. The first reason is that Iloris, who is the Monophysite, was extremely old, and they decided rather than depose him, to just kind of leave him in peace because he was going to die soon. And he did. He died before the end of the year. So it's possible that that was the reason that they did that. And it makes some sense. Now, note, Evagrius Scholasticus here refers to Iloris's death as him, quote, paying the debt of nature, which is just one of those like little turns of phrases that really catches your attention. Paying the debt of nature. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how he said he died. He's made of meat. Yeah, it's like shrouded in antiquity. You just get these like little euphemisms that, yeah, that's a thing. So the second reason why this might have happened with two bishops is a little less rational and suggests that he was left in his place to satisfy the fact that Alexandria had the largest population of Monophysite supporters and it would have helped quell potential unrest to just kind of like leave him be while satisfying the orthodox by restoring their bishop 
But um, we've seen what happens when this situation is left to go unchecked. You know, you remember the never-ending competing elections of Flavortown? The Miletian Schism of Antioch, if you want to be academic and look into it? Apparently, the church had learned nothing from that whole thing. So, when Iloris died, the Monophysites were unwilling to accept Salificiolus as their bishop, and tried to carry on the whole two-bishop tradition by electing a new Monophysite bishop, who was Iloris's archdeacon, Peter Mongus. That's a terrible name. It is a terrible name. It should have been Hugh. <laughs> okay, I'll make myself laugh with that. I just kept reading it and going, Hugh Mongus. Did, I did that thing where I freeze up, because Bryant has just constant bad dad jokes. Constant. They hurt me. I take psychic damage. Well, see, that's why, that's why it came to me. And Pope Simplicius is choked by this point. You know, Zeno is supposed to be restoring the churches to order. And now because they'd looked the other way on Iloris for some reason, there is a bishop slash anti-bishop situation going on, which was doing nothing to discourage Monophysites. So he wrote to Zeno and he requested the emperor intervene on his behalf. And Zeno does. He issues a banishment edict against Peter Mongus and also threatens that any clergyman or layperson that refused to acknowledge Salofasciolus as the Bishop of Alexandria would be deprived of their holdings and possessions and be exiled. However, several sources indicate that Mongus didn't really actually leave Alexandria at this time, and that the Monophysite presence was too large for the emperor to actually risk trying to remove him by force. And while this is all going on, the Orthodox bishop, Salificiolus, was trying to do his job and work on developing a church that was reconciled, unified, and harmonious, but not really because it's not going to be easy. So he attempted a gesture that he thought would bring some better sense of rapport between the Orthodox and the Monophysites. He added the name of Bishop Dioscorus to the diptychs, we're going to be dealing with these so many times coming up, so if you're listening now and you've forgotten, these are the lists of honored bishops that are read at church services. And also to refresh your memory, Dioscorus of Alexandria was the one who had presided over the robber synod and was pretty much the whole reason for the need of the Council of Chalcedon. So Salificiolus thought that by putting... Dioscorus's name on the diptychs that the Monophysites would go, oh, that's a nice gesture. But this was not a good idea, not by anyone's account. And when the Pope hears about this, he turns to Acacius of Constantinople to interfere with Salificiolus and get him to reconsider doing this at all. And that is his March 13th of 478 letter. And whatever Acacius did to press him, it works, because Salificiolus realized he done f and pulled back from his awful, awful plan. And just to make sure that everyone understood that he was still on the straight and narrow, he wrote to the Pope to explain himself and declare that Dioscorus's name would be removed, and that he would follow the Pope's advice forever and for everything. And if that wasn't good enough, he sent representatives to travel to the Pope, just so that everyone is super, super clear, like, oh dear, I done f let me just make this, like, no, 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 I, I retract, I retract. So, Simplicius is pleased. And he's also pleased with Acacius for using his position to reinforce Rome's will. So, Acacius is doing his best to continue to reinforce orthodoxy after his little hesitation where he almost signed the Encycleon. And he writes to Simplicius with a request to help him push out the Monophysites with a little bit more zeal from Constantinople. And Simplicius thinks this is a great idea, and he holds a small synod in Rome to issue a proper excommunication against Peter Fullo of Antioch and other prominent Monophysites like John of Athamea and Paul of Ephesus. Great. And then things get all sorts of messed up. <laughs> so in 479, the staunchly Orthodox patriarch of Antioch, Stephen II, is killed by Monophysites in a revolt. And the Pope is absolutely furious, and he wrote to the Emperor demanding that the killers be punished. In the meantime, Acacius saw that having a vacancy in one of the Church's most influential patriarchates was a threat that would likely be filled with a Monophysite mob, 
So while the Pope is like, condemn these men, he goes ahead and chooses and consecrates an Orthodox successor for Stephen. So because rapid succession, he is going to first consecrate and put into the role Stephen III, and then a man called Calendian. And Simplicius, despite Acacius's best efforts to try and help him, did not like this at all. He wrote to Acacius, basically chastising him for acting, explaining that it was outside of his authority and his jurisdiction to consecrate a bishop for Antioch. He did grant a papal dispensation so that the consecrations of the successors would remain valid, but he's basically flicking Acacius in the nose for acting in a way that should be reserved for the Pope. It's a point of papal supremacy, but it's also incredibly unappreciative considering what was going on. And this is exactly how Acacius felt, and it ruined the relationships between Acacius and Simplicius. And then things get worse. In 481, Timotheus Salificiolus in Alexandria dies, and the Monophysites immediately pick up their efforts to have Peter Mongus instated as the bishop again. The Orthodox bishops weren't about to let that happen, and since the Emperor Zeno had originally pronounced in favor of Orthodoxy, they went ahead and selected a proper bishop, a man called John Talia, who had been the recommendation of Salificiolus to replace him when he died. But there was a problem. For whatever reason, we don't know, Acacius of Constantinople held a grudge or some bad blood with Talia, and disliked him enough that he wasn't even willing to support him over Peter Mongus. Wow. Yeah, and he used his influence over the emperor to have him come to the same conclusion, despite the fact that Talia and the emperor had been on good terms before this. So... Both the emperor and the bishop of Constantinople are willing to support a heretic over Talia. What Talia do? It is shrouded in antiquity. <laughs> Some of his critics wrote that he's like too ambitious and he spent too much money bribing people, and that he already lived like the bishopric was his. So like maybe he was arrogant and maybe he was a little bit flashy. But they're going to support a heretic over him. You know, he must have been real annoying. Super annoying. So, Peter Mongus, the Monophysite on the other end of this, senses his chance here, and he comes from Alexandria to Constantinople to meet with Acacius. In 382, the two men come to some sort of agreement, and by the end of the meeting, the two men have come up with a formula of union that, supported by the Emperor, would bring the Monophysites and the Orthodox Church members into some vaguely satisfactory unification. It would ignore the Council of Chalcedon, but in doing so, it wouldn't decree any new theology that would go against Chalcedon. It's just kind of vague and sort of evasive. As J.B. Burry in his book puts it, the hope was that the Monophysites and their antagonists would agree to differ and would recognize that a common recognition of the great councils of Nicaea and Constantinople was a sufficient bond of communion. And this formula will be known as the Hanoticon. Ironically, the Hanoticon means active union, and we're going to be talking about the Hanoticon for so long, so make a note of that. I will. Yes. Yeah, we're going to be, uh, like, so many episodes later, we will still be talking about the Hanoticon, so... The Hanoticon is preserved as it was issued by the emperor in full again in the writings of Evagrius Scholasticus, and it is, without a doubt, the wordiest edict ever. There are so many in-as-much kind of babble garbage, so no, I am not going to read this one in full despite how important it is. I'm just going to read you, again, a couple little chunky quotes. We in the churches in every quarter neither have held, nor do we or shall we hold, nor are we aware of persons who hold any other symbol or lesson or definition of faith or creed than the before-mentioned holy symbol of the 318 holy fathers, and if any person does hold as such, we deem him an alien. Nestorius was also anathematized, together with Eutyches, 
and all who entertain opinions contrary to those above mentioned. We moreover confess that the only begotten Son of God, himself God, who truly assumed manhood, that he having descended and became incarnate of the Holy Spirit and Mary, the Virgin and Mother of God, is one and not two, for we affirm that both his miracles and the sufferings which he voluntarily endured in the flesh are those of a single person. We in no degree admit those who either make a division or a confusion or introduce a phantom. And these things we write not as setting forth a new form of faith, but for your assurance. And everyone who has held or holds any other opinion, either at present or another time, whether at Chalcedon or in any other synod whatsoever, we anathematize, and specifically the before-mentioned Nestorius and Eutyches, and those who remain in their doctrines. So, the Hanaticon confirms the Council of Nicaea again, and anathematizes Nestorian and Eutyches again, so that they can eliminate the extremes on both sides of the Christological debate, and mostly tries to ride a, a middle ground. It anathematizes anyone who teaches a divergent doctrine at Chalcedon or elsewhere, which, you know, is particularly vague language. And so that either side, whether you were Orthodox or Monophysite, you could read from the Hanoticon what you wanted to get out of it. And like, like I said, this is a really big deal. It, it tries to reconcile Monophysitism in a way that doesn't really actually work with the church at all. And what's more, the emperor issuing this across the whole of the East, he's acting as if he personally is a full ecumenical council unto himself. And this is a huge problem for the Pope, especially when all the Monophysites are happily ascribing their support to the Hanoticon in a large majority because, ooh, this is so much better for us than Chalcedon was. However... Remember when we had those staunch Orthodox monks that had prevented Acacius from signing the Enchicleon in the beginning? They are appalled <laughs> at this new development, and a schism arises in Constantinople where things split down the middle. This is called the Acacian Schism, and we will get into more on that on the next episode. But while all this is happening and in development, John Talia, the Orthodox choice for bishop, that neither Zeno nor Acacius wants to support, sent representatives to the Pope in Rome to inform him of his election to the bishopric. But then ambassadors arrive right around the same time as a letter from Acacius's representatives that denounced Talia of being a perjurer and making bribes and requested that the Pope refuse to recognize Talia in favor of Mongus. Imagine the Pope's confusion to see a letter from his orthodox defending bishop friend Acacius asking him to recognize a monophysite in the position of Patriarch of Alexandria over an orthodox choice. Well, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. But then he catches wind of the whole Hanoticon situation going on and he is livid. Oh, I bet he's so mad. Like, blood vessels are bursting. He's gonna start chewing his friend's nails again. Yep, yep, he is chewed them all down to the bone. He is looking for new people to chew nails off of. So he refuses to recognize either Talia or Mongus as the Bishop of Alexandria, and writes to Acacius to vehemently resist the exception of Mongus or the Hanoticon. But remember that Acacius is already kind of miffed with Simplicius, and at this point receiving this angry letter just kind of like refuses to have any further contact with him. It's like, this Pope, this Pope is mean to me, I am just going to ghost him. And he chooses to ally with Mongus, and tries to get the other bishops in the East to rally together to support him over Talia, who, speaking of, seems pretty shocked that when he gets word that the Pope refuses to recognize him, and he decides to go to Rome to, like, plead his case, because he's like, what the hell? I'm the Orthodox candidate. Why is the Pope refusing to recognize me? But by the time he arrived in 483, Simplicius had died, so it will be up to his successor to deal with Talia and Mongus, Acacius, and the Hanoticon. Wrapping up 
Pope Simplicius died on March 10th of 483, after what is vaguely termed a long illness. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica on Vatican Hill, following the renewed precedent of Pope Leo being buried there, but his original tomb was destroyed when the old St. Peter's was demolished for the construction of the new one in the 16th century. We're going to see that happen a lot to the popes that we're coming up to. After he died, the Roman prefect Basilius came forward and declared to the Senate and to the church that, hey, I was with Simplicius when he died. And right before he died, he made a final decree. And this decree said that no successor should be consecrated for him until the elected candidate had been approved by the king, Odoacer. What do you think the actual odds of that were? Mm, not great. Yeah, no, um, almost none. There is no odds that this was Simplicius's dying words. Oh, hey, um, we're just gonna let the king, the new king who's just taken over, suddenly be responsible for approving all of our papal candidates, because that's papal supremacy. The clergy of Rome are quick to point out how absolutely ridiculous this was, and they outright resist an edict to this effect. There is no way that they are going to allow the new king to infringe on their right of election, and they cite one of Honorius's edict, back from the papacy of Boniface I, that outlined the authority of the Roman clergy solely to elect and consecrate the bishop of Rome without interference. So this whole, oh hey, I was with the Pope and these were his final words, dies really quickly. And the clergy elect their choice for successor without Odoacer's involvement or permission. But we're going to get to who that is next week. So, it's time to rate this man. Papatum infallium. He is not afraid to fight for orthodoxy. He fought against Basiliscus's Encycleon and praised its reversal. He tried to resist the Henoticon, but he died before the outcome. He was able to keep his authority and influence during the fall of Rome. This isn't necessarily to his credit, but there are other popes who could have ruined this opportunity, and he uses it to grow influence. You know, he didn't get stuck up on Odoacer's Arianism and kind of went with the spirit of cooperation that benefited the whole church. He creates a new papal vicariate in Spain. He created regular public services in Rome, which made the church more uniform and accessible for the laity. The only bad thing, really, is that his push for papal primacy went a little too far and ruined that relationship with Acacius, which is a primary factor in keeping orthodoxy together in the East, and that whole ruined relationship is going to have massive consequences. So, it's mostly good, but that one's really bad. What do you think he's worth? I want to give him, like, a four. I just, I wasn't super excited by him. He is not super exciting, but he is definitely doing some things. I'm giving him some credit here because he maintained that, you know, new boss, same as the old boss, took a little bit more authority, regular public services in Rome, expanded a little bit to places like Spain, and he tried to fight for orthodoxy. So I'm going to give him a six. So he's going to get a ten in that category. Fructus prohibitum. We could give him a point here for being a prat to Acacius and souring that relationship. Yeah, one. One. Yeah. I get why. You know, it's it's a thing, but it does really, really mess things up for a long time. I think he gets a one. One is fair. Seculari impactum. He literally gets to have more secular influence and authority when Odoracer takes over. And he does so as a consistent administration that manages to convert barbarian settlers. So this one's pretty good. Like, he did a very good job here. I'm going to give him at least a seven. Okay. I was thinking maybe like eight. Okay. If you're going to give him an eight, I will stick with my seven. So he gets a nice 15. Fossium Sanctus. Let's look at this. 90s girl pop band in the face. Kind of, sort of. It's very tiny. He's so small. He's for ants. Yeah, it's going to be hard to judge on this one because the only version of our traditional photo that we rate on is very small. And then we have our traditional bad artist, which is really 
I don't know. It's just another Colin Mockery. That is another Colin Mockery. But the one above him, he looks a lot like, um, you know, that old chess man from Pixar, but with like a really bushy beard. Yeah, he does. But I'm going to show you one more. And this one's more clear. And it's got the same kind of thing going on. So we're going to rate on this one and you'll, you'll see why. They're very similar. Yeah. So he's got the bushy beard, but he also has a schnoz. Yeah. Is that Count Olaf? <laughs> it kind of looks that way, doesn't it? This one is worth a couple points, I think. You know, for me, it's bad because I don't like beards. And, and the fact that his beard seems to shoot out from his mouth and kind of stick out a bit bothers me. <laughs> I only want to give him three points. One point for every orphan he tried to capture. Okay, he gets three points. Hmm. I'm going to give him two points for the nose and take one away for the stupid beard. So he's just getting a one from me. He's got a plate on his head. Yeah, he, you know, I'll give him a point back for the plate. This is the first real halo picture we've seen. It's kind of a very strange. It's either like a plate that he's wearing on his head or it's like literally a black hole behind him. Oh, he's going to get sucked up. He's going to get sucked into it. Just like that. Yep, it's going to be great. Okay. That leaves him with a 5, which gives him a score of 1.25. Not bad. I hate his stupid beard. I, it's clearly his choice I know. of style. It's in all... Does he comb it that way? You gotta, like, spend some time curling it, and I just... Uh, you, gotta, you gotta make it go poof. Yeah, I'm not into it. I don't like it. So, yeah, no. Tempus Pontificus. February 25th of 468 to March 2nd or 10th of 483. So that's 15 years and a score of 3.75. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. Uh, yes, he is a saint with a feast day of March 10th. He is not a patron saint. Should we make him the patron saint of nail biters? Yeah. Yeah, okay. He is now the patron saint of nail biters. He bites his friend's nails, bites his toenails. You pray to him when you bite your own nails, and you invoke him to stop your friends from biting your nails? <laughs> Don't bite your friend's nails. We watched this YouTube food reviewer guy who does most, mostly South Asian food in Thailand and whatever, and he did an episode where he was talking about how how something smelled, and he's like, you know when you clip off a toenail and you smell it? And Jordan looks at me, he's like, oh man, so many people are relating with him right now, and I'm sitting there going, no! What the f***? Who does that? <laughs> and that's what's coming to mind right now. Who does that? So. Uh, clearly Jordan does. <laughs> Apparently! It was just... It was really uncomfortable. Now you know that your husband sniffs his own toes. That's so weird! Who does this? Someone's going to write in and be like, I do that. And I'm going to be like, ew. How dare you shame me in my own home with my own toes. Don't smell your toenails. Don't bite your friend's nails either. Simplicious. Come on, dude. Okay, so that brings us to his total score, which is not bad. He got a 32. He's in the 30s club. Oof. Wow. He's doing good. Yeah. It puts him up there with a couple of his predecessors. So our last couple popes, he's there with Boniface and Celestine. And Leo was significantly higher, of course. So Felix is there as well. It's not bad. So now I have to ask you if you think he's papally enough, pizzazzy enough, and worthy, simpliciously, of a papal bull. <laughs> no, I don't want to, no. No, okay. That's fine. Even though he is the Pope that has my favorite name, I'm okay with that decision. I just, you know, creepy nail-biting man. No. At least he doesn't poop at parties. Wow, they're a perfect compliment to one another, aren't they? Well, that leaves us with some thank yous to make. First, for Patreon, we have some temporal punishments to absolve. So, with that in mind, we need to thank... Janice Carter, you are absolved. Ego te absolvo. And we need to thank Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor for being constant sources of inspiration 
especially Rob and Jamie at Totalis Rankium for supporting us always and sending us their Pope Hilarious song for last week's episode. If you downloaded it right away and you didn't get the version with their song tacked on at the end, re-download it because it's so worth it. It's ridiculous and fun. And if you have not heard of their show or listened to their show, go and do it now because it is incredible. And what are you doing with your life? Why are you listening to us and not them? I don't... Why are you here? How did you even find us without them? And we need to thank the Roman and Byzantine History Group on Facebook. And also, if you're in a history podcast, um, there there's a Discord server. You should join us there. Do that thing. It's called History Podcasts, and you should check that out if you like Discord and you like talking and shooting the shit with people like us. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank mm-hmm. you.